You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Good to see you guys. And indeed, 1 John chapter 2 this morning is where we are going to be. 1 John chapter 2, making our way through the study of this book. If you're visiting here today, indeed, welcome. Glad you're here. And here at Calvary Chapel, we study the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. That is what we seek to do here, seek to know the Bible so we can live in light of what it says, because it's God's Word seeking to teach us how to live our life for Him. And so we are studying the book of 1 John right now, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we are going to be moving through verses 12 through 17 today. And if you are taking notes, the title for this message is The Believer and the Worlds. The believer and the world. And we have learned thus far that John, that wrote this book, well, he was the apostle of Jesus Christ, and he's writing currently to the global and the growing church that's there at the turn of the first century. And the theme of this book that we are that we're going with and we're seeing played out, shown to us, is that of walking in the lights, about how we as believers walking in relationship with Jesus Christ, well, that life that we live, it, it should look different. And it does look different as John has explained thus far. I mean, thus far as we've studied, we've seen John writing to the believer on the topic of their salvation, that salvation in Jesus Christ is available, and that Jesus, he's ready to save, wanting to save all. And as you begin that relationship with Jesus Christ, well, so too should your life show the evidence of that. So should your life show the evidence as you walk with the Lord, you walk in the light, you walk differently in this world. And to not do so is reason for concern. It's reason for concern. That's what the topic was last week we saw. As John sought to encourage the believer, showing that indeed you could have assurance of your salvation. As you could have marks, that there are marks of one's life that show out as you walk with the Lord. And we saw that John, that he discussed that from the desire to fulfill the commandments of God, to walk out and be obedient to the Lord, to also the love that we have for one another as the church. Well, those things are marks of salvation and they show that the believer, well, they walk in the lights. And what we're gonna find today as we move through the text is John is continuing to show what it looks like to live in this world. Specifically, what John wants to do is he wants to establish the believer's mind and the right perspective when it comes to the world and the world that we live in. What John wants to do is he wants to show today the position that the believer is to have within the world. As John wants the reader to have a right relationship with the Lord that drives all who follow the Lord in the right direction with Jesus, to live for Jesus, to show Jesus, and to shine out the light of Jesus. And to do that, to do that, the believer needs to have a right relationship with the world, a right position within the worlds, and that is what John is going to speak on today, really today, and in multiple other ways throughout the rest of this book. And so if you have your Bible, we're going to pick up and read the first few verses of our text today, read verses 12 through 14, as we see John really get a running start into into the verses that we're going to study as we continue on, where he's going to seek, as he wants to show the position of the believer in the world, well, he first wants to establish what that position in Christ looks like first. So pick up with me there in verse 12 as we read together through verse 14. As John says there, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. And I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. 
I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. And I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. And I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Will you pray with me before we continue on? Father, we thank you so much for this day. And Lord, I thank you so much, Father, just for the opportunity that we have to be here, Lord. I thank you for everyone that is here, God. And just uh, knowing there's so many of the things that are available to us to do in, our, in this world, but yet, God, we are here for you. We're here to worship you. We're here to study your word. And I thank you for these that are here to do that. And I pray that in this time, God, as we seek to hear from you as we study your word, that you would speak clearly to us, God. And you always are so faithful to do that. And I pray that we, Lord, would ready our hearts. We would ready our minds to hear what you have to say. And that, Lord, the things of your word, we would see them as truth. And, God, we would take them to heart and seek to pattern our lives according to them. And so, Lord, I pray in this time that you would help us with those things. Help us to understand your word. Help us, Lord, to follow your word as we hear it. And, Lord, as I ask for help, I ask for it expectantly, knowing that you are faithful, knowing, God, that you are good and you are faithful to speak to us and to lead us. So lead us now, I pray, and help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, though simplistic in nature, the things that we just read, these truths that John writes here, well, they are important for the reader to know and to really take to hearts as they live in this world, as we live in this world. And so what John is writing again here for you note takers is what the position in Christ looks like before he wants to show what our position in the world should look like. And as John writes, you'll notice that he uses um, some different phrases as he addresses the people. And you notice there that he, he seeks, and as he, as he seeks to address everyone, it almost appears that he's addressing different age groups or different maturity levels within the church. I mean, he says there, as he writes, to little children, to, to fathers, and also to young men, which can, again, make it seem like he's only speaking to certain age demographics and not speaking to women at all within the church. But understand that as he writes, that John writes here with an all-inclusive type of mentality. As he desires here to remind and to encourage the church really as a whole of the position that they have in Jesus and of the blessing of a relationship with him. And as he uses, to clarify for us, as he uses the term little children, understand that this is what shows us this overarching heart of inclusivity that John is writing with. This is a term of endearment, you see, that John uses quite often. In fact, he's going to use it a few more times within this book. John, right, right now, he's, he's in his upper, he's in his, he's in his seasoned years. He's in his upper 80s and 90s. He's getting ready to go home to be with the Lord. And so as he writes here, well, he writes with this grandfatherly type of, type of voice as he speaks there to the church. But also to assure the reader that he's talking to them and that no one thinks that they're left out. Well, he also speaks there and he employs the use of two other labels, that of fathers and of young men. Fathers would speak to those who are mature in the faith. Those that perhaps may not even be that old in years, but yet are older in the Lord's. And then he speaks to young men as well. This would speak to those that are less mature in the faith. Those who were saved and could be old or young in physical age, but yet were young in their faith. They were younger in the Lord than some. And the point that we see John making here as he, as he writes is not so much to the age demographic that he addresses, but it's to the overarching voice that he speaks there to the church, that of the position in Jesus Christ, that of the blessing of the position that one holds in Christ, that it is real, and as such, it should be lived in light of. 
You know, something amazing about our faith in Jesus Christ is that it comes with great blessing. Our relationship with Jesus comes with great blessing that we are called to live in and to live in instantaneously. To understand that as you are in Jesus from the moment that you are saved, that there is this amazing blessing, blessings, I would even say, that as we're going to see in the text, that are available to us that we should live in light of. And as John writes these things out, well, so too does it do us well to really define them and see what they are. So what are these blessings, this position that we hold in Jesus? Well, John lines them out for us. And the first one, I love it, he says there in verse 12, which is such a huge blessing for the believer, is that of forgiveness of sins. You see, John wants the reader of any age, of any age, whether it be physical age or age in the Lord, what he wants them to know is that in Jesus Christ, they have forgiveness of sins. What an amazing truth to know. What an amazing blessing to live in light of. You see, the truth is the Bible tells us that as one puts their faith in Jesus Christ and the salvation that he offers, well, forgiveness for sins is immediately given. And there's this immediate forgiveness, this taking away of the sins that the, that the person has as they put their faith in Jesus. The Bible says that they stand no longer as sinners, but they stand justified in Jesus Christ, seen as clean before the Lord's. You know, we have, Romans 4 tells us, and this, this word, you may hear it as you're reading the Bible or seeing the text and, and sitting in Bible studies, that word imputed, that we have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that word imputed, it's a banking term, which means to deposit. And I love this word because what it means in our relationship with Jesus is that his righteousness, which we know that he lived out perfectly in this world as he was fully God and fully man living here, that he satisfied the righteous requirement of the law. And as he did so, he died on the cross. He took upon himself our sin and our punishment, the whole of the world's. And as he finished the work, what we have available is the imputed righteousness, the deposited righteousness of Jesus Christ to our life accounts. That's an amazing blessing. It's an amazing blessing that we see and we stand before the Lord forgiven and cleansed. That is a blessing and positionally how the believer should know that they live. How the believer should know that they live and walk in this world. And John wants to establish that. He says, I write to you because your sins are forgiven. I'm writing to you to remind you and establish you in this fact that your sins in Jesus Christ, that they are forgiven. What an amazing blessing that John starts out with. And forgiveness of sins is an amazing position the Christian holds. But also, too, he says, there's a, a, a blessing positionally because of coming to know the Father, of knowing the Father, he says next. See, John spoke of this earlier in the letter, in fact. It was that we were introduced to John's letter here. He introduced Jesus to us afresh. And as he did so, something that he made sure to mention and to really establish is that in Jesus Christ, in a relationship with him, you have fellowship with him and with the Father. That you know the Father. That is a real blessing to know that as you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, well, so too do you know God the Father. What an amazing thing to see, especially in light of the fact that the Bible says that in our sinful and lost state, that we are separated from God. In fact, that's how we're born, friends. We are born into this world. Every one of us is a sinner. And that sin does nothing but separate us from the Lord. It separates and causes this chasm, this chasm that we cannot cross in our own effort, in our own strength, by our own merits. But thankfully, Jesus crossed it for us. He made a bridge for us to be able to cross over, to have relationship with God. In Jesus Christ, we have relationship with God. We are not only 
we are, we are not far from God any longer, but we are close to God. We have, a, we have access to God. And I love this too. The Bible says in Romans that not only were we at once separated from God and against Him, but we were in fact enemies of God. We were enemies of God, but yet in Jesus Christ, I love this, we are no longer enemies, but we are reconciled to him. And Romans 8 even goes further on to say that not only are we are reconciled to him, not only are we saved, but we're sons and daughters. We are adopted by the Lord. We are adopted sons and daughters of the king, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. As we know him, as we are in Jesus Christ, the amazing blessing on our life is forgiveness of sins and a knowing, a relationship, an experiential relationship with God. That is an amazing thing for the believer to hold on to. And Johnny continues on. Another one that John mentions is the overcoming of the evil, standing strong in this world. What a blessing to know and to stand as one is in Jesus Christ, to be able to stand not as one who is still in bondage and living in defeat, living as a slave to sin. That's what the Bible says that we are, as we are lost but to stand in Jesus Christ to know that we are on the winning side. We're on the winning side, friends. We are victorious in Jesus, and we stand on the winning side and the right side, I hope you know this, of history. The world may say in this day and age that the church is on the wrong side of history, but the church, my friends, in Jesus Christ is on the right side of history. As you are in Jesus, you are victorious, no matter what the world would say, and the ruler of this world, who is Satan, by the way, what he would say, in Christ, we are overcomers. In Jesus Christ, we are overcomers of sin in the world system, and we are called to stand in that place of victory. John wants to establish the believer as blessed and victorious in Christ. You are no longer a slave to sin, but a son and daughter of, of the Lord's. An amazing truth, an amazing blessing. And John establishes this, and this is really good. This blessing is so good in light of what he's going to speak of next as we live in this world and all the things he has to say about the worlds. But before he goes on, there's one more blessing, and that is the blessing of possessing the word of God. What does he say in verse 14 again? He says, and the word of God, it abides in you. You see, literally what that means is that the word of God is in them and it dwells within them, within their heart and life and they have made the word of God a part of them. Friends, what a blessing it is. And I hope you understand this and we never gloss over this because of the familiarity and the access that we have to it here in America to how amazing and how much of a blessing that the word of God is. The fact that you have a Bible right now in your lap, in your hand, on your phone or any device is an amazing blessing. And it's a, it's a pure picture of the kindness of God, too. I hope you realize that. Uh, like it, it's an amazing thing to know that God in his kindness, that he, one, that he desires to know us at all. He desires to have a relationship with us, with us at all. The fact that God saves us is amazing. But the fact that he also saved us and then seeks to equip us through the Bible, well, that is even more amazing. To know that God does, didn't just save us and say, all right, good luck, I'll see you when you get to heaven. No, he said, here's my words. Here's my word. Here is the truth. Live by it. Read it. Take it in. Eat it. Whatever you want to do with it. Smell it. All the things. And live according to it. And know that is a blessing. What does Psalm 1 verses 1 through 3 say? It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord's. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And he, as he does that, shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. It is a blessing to have the word of God. 
And it is a blessing for us as we have the word of God to be in it, to abide in it, to let the word of God abide in us. That we would take it in and we would read it and we would hold it and realize that it is a blessing that we have that. And again, this may sound simple and elementary to hear today. Again, looking at the room, many of you, you, you call this church your home. And so you hear these things. You know these things. You're walking in Jesus. You're like, yeah, I know my sins are forgiven. You're like, yeah, I, I know that I am known by God, that I know God. I know that I stand victoriously with the Lord. And you know that you're blessed as you read the Bible. And you should read your Bible every single day. Read your Bible and pray every single day. And know that you're blessed as you do so. And I understand that those are basic principles in walking with God. They're also so important. They're so important. These basic principles are so important for us to know, friends. You've heard it before. The basics matter. The basics matter when it comes to our relationship with God. We can't be reminded enough of these truths. And I'm so thankful for the basic truths wrapped up in my relationship with God. I'm so thankful for the forgiveness. And I'm so thankful for the knowing the Father relationally and experientially and Him knowing me as well. The fact that I can stand up here right now and know that in Jesus Christ, that it's not by my merit or my effort, but by His blood shed for me. Man, the fact that I can stand here and know that God forgives me, that He loves me, that He knows me and wants to know me, that's amazing. That's an amazing blessing, friends, one that we should take to heart, one that we should seek to live in light of and walk out in this world. I'm also thankful to be on the winning side with Jesus. No one likes to be a loser, and in Jesus Christ, you're not a loser. In Jesus Christ, you are victorious, and I'm thankful that God has given me his word to read and to hold and to memorize and to take in and to let abide in me, and I can abide in it. And walk in this world. I'm so thankful for these blessings. These blessings, they are wrapped up in our relationship with God. And they're things we need to never forget. Things we need to never forget because they solidify who we are in Jesus. They help us to walk in our daily life with Jesus. Help us to know as I'm forgiven and loved and valued and known by the Lord, I will walk differently. I'll walk boldly knowing that I'm victorious. I will walk boldly. And I also too am, am equipped I'm equipped and you are equipped. We are equipped with a way to bless, not just ourselves as we know these things, but one another. We're able to bless one another and to bless the world around us. We're able to bless one another and encourage one another and to walk unified with one another. That's a huge thing. That's a huge thing with knowing all of these blessings that we have from the Lord to be able to walk in unity because of them. You know, if you're reading the one your Bible with us this morning in Ephesians, it was Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 is an amazing chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters in all the New Testament. As Paul there, he calls upon the church after establishing who they are in Jesus, where their identity is wrapped up in Jesus. He says, hey, walk in light of that. In light of how you're called, in light of who the Lord is, walk in light of that and do so together. And he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to the church to walk in unity and to walk in unity, walking forward in this world on mission, serving and showing the Lord's. And these blessings right here, man, the position that we hold in Christ, that helps with that. If we forget those, or if we seek to interject ourselves into those, seeking to think that it's our effort and our merit and what we can do and how we can make things better and do this and that, what happens is we start to focus on ourselves and not on the blessings that the Lord has put in our lives. We start to focus inward instead of upward and then outwards. And that can cause damage to the unity of the church. I hope you realize that. We as a church are called to walk in unity, seeking the Lord. And we do that so well as we're reminded of the basic blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. 
John here writes these things, and as he writes them, it's again to get the positioning of a heart established in the life of the believer. Establish these things in your hearts, friends. Establish these truths of God's word, who you are in Jesus, that you are known, that you know the Father, that you, we are victorious, and that we, as we have the word of God, we can live appropriately, reminding ourselves consistently and cultivating the unity that God has called us to have. John writes these things here, and then he moves on. And again, what he's done is he's written these things here so as to get a running start, to create a backdrop, if you will, to prepare the believer to know, okay, here's who you are in Jesus. Here's your position in Christ. And now, as I'm going to show you what your position in this world needs to look like, well, remember who you are in Jesus and walk through the world in light of that. And so what we're going to see as we move on now in verses 15 through 17 is we're going to see here the position in the world, or really you could say the position that the believer is to hold in the world as they continue to live with Jesus. So pick up with me in verse 15 as we read our text together. Where John says, remembering all these things that he's already said, he says, do not love the worlds or the things in the worlds. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world's. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God, John says, abides forever. Now, admittedly, as we read this, confusion could arise in one's mind as to what John means when he says, do not love the world. I mean, considering that the first memory verse that we learn is that God so loved the world, right? So we're like, ah, I don't, I don't really understand what's going on here. Considering we know that God loves the world, and as the church, we live in this world to show that love to the world around us. So what does John mean when he says, do not love the world? Well, the world, in the sense that John means it here, he's not speaking of the global earth. What I mean by that is the planet, the, the, the ground that we are standing on, sitting on at this moment. That's not what he's speaking of. Nor is it the mass of humanity, which God himself indeed does love. John 3.16 is absolutely true. God so loved the world, the whole world, that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the truth. God loves the world. He loves humanity. Rather, what John is talking about here is the fallen and sinful system of this world that is opposed to God and to his works, which is something that we must understand, and we must understand is true and be reminded of that this world is fallen, that this world is not in the state in which it was created at one time. Society would seek to say that the world is getting better. We must do all that we can to save the world and just to continue to make it a better place. Understand, that is not going to happen. We are told in the Word of God, this Bible, this, in the Bible that we have, that the world is decaying, that it is broken, it is fallen. And we know that that was not how it was created. It was created in Genesis 1.1. You know the verse well, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We're studying Genesis on Wednesday nights. You should come out and continue to study the truth of the beginning with us. Because what we know is that as God created everything, he created it perfectly. He created it perfectly as we see there within the Bible, but it didn't stay perfect for very long. No, in fact, what happens is in Genesis chapter 3, just three chapters in, we see that sin, it entered the world. And what was once created perfectly and lived harmoniously with the Lord, but was plunged into opposition against God. And there is a ruler currently over this world. His name is Satan. And he, what he does is he drives and uses the world and its system and its inhabitants to stand in stark opposition to the Lord. And this is something else that we don't talk about nearly enough, but is absolutely important as we live in this world. 
to know and remember that this world is not just physical, it's spiritual. And that our relationship with Jesus Christ is not just physical. We don't just live to serve and to walk physically in this world. There is a supernatural, a spiritual element to our Christianity. And it's a very important element of our Christianity. I mean, just our salvation. I mean, how that all works out, that we have the imputed righteousness of Jesus upon our life. I don't fully understand that. Neither do you. So I don't worry about telling you that I don't fully understand that. I just know that the Bible says it's true. I know the Bible says it's true and it's supernatural in how we are justified by the Lord's and how we walk with that righteousness upon our lives. And that's an element, just one element of the supernatural of our faith. But also, too, what we need to know and remember always that in this world, there are spiritual forces that are at work and there is a spiritual war that is waging. You may have come here today knowing Jesus Christ, thinking that you know him in relationship to get to heaven, but understand that you didn't just choose Jesus for a destination. You chose Jesus and you chose a side in a war that's been waging for a very long time. And there is a ruler that is against Jesus, that is against the Lord and against his word. His name is Satan. He's against the church as well. He's against you and yourself and your family as well. I hope you realize that. And what he does is he seeks to run the world and its system and its inhabitants, again, to stand in stark opposition to the Lord's. The Bible speaks of this in Ephesians 6.12. As Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. These principalities, these powers, these rulers of darkness, spiritual hosts of wickedness, those terms all speak of what we were just talking about, of Satan and his demons and the darkness that is ruling this world that is fueled, again, by Satan and his demons. This world, the world system, that is what John here is calling for the believer to not love. The world system that is against the Lord, that is against his word, that lives in stark opposition to him. Well, that is what John here is calling for us not to love. And that word love, in fact, it necessitates some clarification as well. Because what you see here is John, he uses this word love and he uses it in its verb form. It's the verb form of the word agape. Or this loving the world is expressed in action. It's expressed in time spent. It's expressed in attention given and expense or the spending of resources within it. The love that John speaks of here is a loving attention and dedication, a commitment that is shown out in action towards the, towards the world over that of the commitment and action towards the Lord's. And so John says, we read it again, do not love the world. Again, that's that system of it that is fallen, opposed to God, or the things in the world's. And he goes on to say this, and here what John does is he draws another line in the sand. He's done this several times. He will continue to do it. He says, if anyone loves the world's, the love of the Father is not in him. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John makes a claim, drawing this line in the sand and wants to show that the love of this world and the love for God, that they are incompatible. They're incompatible. Plainly put, if one loves the world system, if one loves the world system and the things within that system, to make it easy, John, as he explains this and will show out things that are not biblical, things that are against the word of God, to love life and compromise in this world over that of what God says is right in this world. To do that is to show a love for this world over that of the Lord. And those two things, they don't go together. Those two things are not compatible. And to do that is not love or to be in true re relationship with God. 
And John goes on to elaborate on this, so as to bring clarity as to what this looks like. For John says, for all that is in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. See, John here, he categorizes for us, he lays out for us how, this, how the world operates and what, we should, and what we should see the world system has in opposition to the world. And he sums it up with a couple of phrases. He starts first there, for you note takers, with the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. Now, in our vocabulary, especially as we're speaking within church circles, lust is usually taken in reference to sexual desire and to not much else. However, it is not limited only to sexual desire. In fact, the etymology of the word in Greek literally means to be hot after something. Not just after sexual desire, but to be hot after something. And in the context that we read here, this lust is any sinful desire that is contrary to the will of God. It is contrary to the will of God, any desire that would seek to please the flesh, the natural sinful state of mankind. You could categorize it to the idea of whatever feels good, doing whatever feels good and seeking after that feeling only, seeking to only please the physical self, whatever tastes good, just taking it all in as much as you can until it hurts and then just continuing to shovel it in. Whatever makes one happy instead of what makes one holy, because those are, it's a very important thing. Despite the consequences, whatever feels good or tastes good or makes one happy, despite the consequences to oneself or to others, the lust of the flesh seeks only to please that oneself, that one's person. He says, too, the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes, this lusting of the eyes, this goes right in line with the lusting of the flesh because it often starts with the eyes. It speaks of the covetous nature of the flesh. The looking and the seeing, you could classify it as a discontentment and always desiring for the next thing or for the thing that your friend has, the thing that your neighbor has, the thing that someone has. It could be anything. You know, you see your neighbor, they get a new car. Your car may even be newer, but they, they drive up in something new and you're immediately like, oh, my car stinks. Or a house. Again, your house may be bigger, but you see someone move. And why anyone would envy anyone after a move? I have no idea, but you might do it. As you're like, oh, they got a new house. It has this feature. Oh, I don't have that feature. I want that. It could be a boat, a set of golf clubs, a gun, a sewing machine, a hobby, a relationship, toys for the kids, whatever it may be. I don't know. You know what your eyes are drawn to. And what we see here is whatever it may be, our eyes, as they are always wondering, as they are fixed always on things that are around us. Well, the lust of the eyes going right in line with the lust of the flesh, things not belonging to us, they become an idol. It becomes something that we see, something that we desire. And oftentimes that desire, what it does is it just gets us all wrapped up in it. It becomes something that we elevate to a place that only the Lord should hold. And we love the things and we desire for the things. And we think that if we have the things, then we'll be set. We'll be content. We'll be good. But John says that that mentality is incompatible with our standing with the Lord's. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, lastly, the pride of life. And as we talk about the pride of life, we must not get confused with the pride of life and taking pride in the life that we live in, because there is a difference. Because we are called in the book of Colossians to do everything heartily as unto the Lord. We are called to work hard, to live in this world, to do and serve the Lord and serve one another. And I want you to know there's nothing wrong with being proud of doing a good job. In fact, as believers, we should seek always to do a good job. As we walk and live in this world and work in this world, as a part of the church, the global church, as a part of the body of Christ, anything the world does, the church should do better. 
The church corporately and the church individually should seek to do everything better. And so there's nothing wrong with taking pride in that. There's nothing wrong with being proud of a job well done. In fact, the Lord, he would seek to say, hey, do everything and do it well. But what we see here is the pride of life speaks of this arrogant spirit of self-sufficiency. It speaks of the desire for recognition, for applause, for status, and gaining advantage in life, no matter the obstacles in one's way, whether that obstacle be a person or the word and the principles of God. The word pride here describes a pretentious bragger, one commentator said, one who always has to be the loudest, who is always seeking attention, wanting to be noticed for what they have done for themselves and for others. The pride of life, what it does is seek to elevate self. See, to elevate oneself as the best and seeking always to attain that and only looking to this world in the position it has and offers and nothing else. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. You know, if you're reading the book of Genesis, these are the things, if you pay attention to there in Genesis 3, that Satan actually came against Eve with as she was there in the garden. As he appeased to the lust of the flesh, showing her there the fruit, it was good to eat, showing her there the fruit, the lust of the eyes, it was good to take, and then the pride of life, that it would elevate her to this place and position that was equal with God. In fact, what did he do? He, he, he lied to her, twisting the word of God, seeking to say, in essence, that God was keeping something from her. And it was that that tempted her and tempted her husband and there brought sin into the world. You know, this is also the same thing that Satan tempted Jesus with. You see this in Matthew 4 and in, in Luke chapter 4 as well. As Jesus is in the wilderness, shortly after his baptism, it says the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and there he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And as he was there, he was hungry because he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and, and he was fully God and fully man, so he was hungry. And it said, the Bible says, the greatest understatement in the world, so he was hungry. And here comes Satan. Satan comes and he tempts Jesus there in the wilderness, and he says, hey, I know you're hungry, buddy. So, hey, look at these stones. You can turn those to bread. Do it. He tempted there the lust of the flesh. He tempted there the flesh of our Savior. And what happened? What happened is Jesus, he combated Satan with the word. Man should not live by bread alone. And so he didn't succumb to that. But then also, too, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Satan kind of wrapped these all into one with the other two as he brought in there to the pinnacle, the tallest part of the temple. And what did he do? He said, throw yourself off. Throw yourself off and let the angels take care of you. Let God save you. Let people see the Lord do a work and preserve you. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you should not test the Lord your God. Again, he answered with the word. And then, of course, what did he do? He took Jesus to the highest mountain, showed him the kingdoms of the world. And understand that Satan had every authority there to give him those kingdoms because Satan, well, he is the ruler of this world. And every authority to do so. And as he's standing there, he shows in the world, says, you can have this all. All you got to do is bow to me. They're tempting the pride of life, seeking to cause Jesus, our only Savior, the only way to salvation, our only possibility for salvation, to stumble and to fall and to compromise on the plan. But what did Jesus do? He answered again with Scripture. You shall only worship the Lord your God. Satan fleed after that. I love it. We see there at the fall that we see this example of what not to do, but there with our Savior, we see the example of what to do. And how our position in Jesus Christ, that our position in Christ should reflect that. It should show that as we live in this world for and with Jesus. And I'm very thankful because what we know here is that as Jesus, as he overcame that, well, so too does he aid us in overcoming the same as well. And John moves on, finishing out the text, and he's very clear. 
giving us another reason to see here that these things are not of the Lord, not, not compatible with the Lord. What does he say in verse 17? He says, to put it in perspective for the believer, and this world's, it is passing away, and the lust of it. See, John has spoken and will continue to speak of the eternality of the Lord, and of the eternality, the eternal state of a believer. Again, we have eternal life with Jesus. We have eternal life with the Father. As we live with Jesus, we walk with Jesus, we have eternal life that is for heaven one day, but also, too, that we live in now. And this aids us in that perspective because what we need to know is that as we live in this world, this world and the things of it, it's not all that there is. In fact, it's passing away. It's decaying. It is falling. And so not only should the believer not love the world because it's against the Lord, but also, too, because of the temporary status of this world. The believer is saved by an eternal God and so should have that eternity in mind. And John, what does he say then? He says, and the world is passing away, the lust of it, but he who does the will of God, what does he do? He abides forever. The world is temporary. It's passing away, but as we surrender to and do the will of God, as we recognize our position in Christ and the position in light of that that we're to hold in this world, then we live rightly. We live rightly. The Bible says that we abide forever. The eternal life we have in Christ is real, and it is for us, friends. But the Bible is clear as well, and we must not forget this. Again, John, I love it. He's often called the apostle of love, and he, he is very loving. He's hard loving. He's a lot harder than I give him credit, have given him credit before. Reading and studying First John, I'm like, John, you're a hard dude, and I like that. Because he makes it very clear for us. He draws lines for us very clearly in the sand, saying here that if anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. And again, John, he doesn't create all these things in his own mind. This isn't just his stuff. No, he teaches things and writes things that he learned from Jesus. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, you know this verse well. It says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. Or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And God's word is explicit in this, t- in this topic over and over again. That you can't serve two masters. You can't sit one foot in each camp. The world and the flesh and the relationship and the walking and the will of God, they're not compatible with one another. And understand that we as people, just as human beings, at a base level, as human beings, we will always go for something over something else. Our entire life is always denying ourselves something else and going for something else, right? Like when you go to a restaurant after church today to go eat lunch and you're all hungry now, what you're going to do is you're going to pick something on the menu other than something else, We will always seek to gravitate to something else. We will give our allegiance to something. That's why we go to the same restaurants and order the same thing, even though there's a massive menu. It's because we know what we like and our allegiance is sure. And we'll do that at a Mexican food restaurant. But how often do we seek to try to compromise and try to play in both camps with the Lord's? Where we'll align ourselves with a habit, we'll align ourselves with a situation, we'll align ourselves with things and totally be on board with that. But when it comes to the Lord and our relationship with the Lord, as we live in this world, we try to go back and forth. And Jesus would, would say that that is not what you do, that you will love one and you will hate the other. And so the question for us today, what question needs to be asked of each of us today, inward and honestly with ourselves, is who do we love more? Who do you love more today? John writes, the Bible as a whole is written so as to show us the Lord and our position that is available to him. And today the Bible calls us, again, for honesty. 
to see where our allegiance truly lies, to see who we love the most in this world. Do you love the Lord today with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, living in this world, seeking to serve him and serve others as we are called to, as Jesus called and commanded? Does that mark your life? Does the love of the Lord mark your life today? Do you love the things of God, the position you have in him, the forgiveness, the knowing God? Does his word abide in you? And do you seek to walk those things out? Or do you find that you're loving the world and the things of the world more in your life? You know, with these other things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, would those mark your life more than that of the love of the Lord, than the love for the Lord? Would that mark your life today? And a good way to gauge that is to see what you desire most just in your daily life. If you're wondering today, like, I I don't know, well, then ask yourself, okay, what does my daily life look like? What is time in the the day-to-day? Are you concerned about your time in the Word and your time serving the Lord? Ask yourself this question. Are you concerned about those things and are you concerned about them more than your time on your phone or on social media? or being wrapped up in Fox News and other things, or sports. Of course, I'm told it's football season or something like that. I don't know, but anyway, I'm told that. Are you more wrapped up in that, or, or, or are you wrapped up in things at the office, or in the deer woods? Because I know that's about to come up. Or at the, the lake, or at the store, or shopping online, whether it's brick or mortar or online, I don't know, it's all the same. Are you concerned about the word of the Lord and the things of the Lord, or, or those things? What's the first thing you gravitate to in the morning? Are you more concerned with how the Lord sees you or how the world sees and perceives you? Do you want the world to see you built up and walking in a facade that is just, I've got to have it all together and look the way that I'm supposed to all the time? And you're dead inside and the Lord knows it and you know it. Are you concerned more about what the Lord sees or about what the world sees? Do you seek after what God has for you? Do you seek after his plan and his will for your life over that of your plan? and the world's plan and idea for your life? What mold do you fit in? Your life and your actions, they speak as to where you truly are with God. And the believer's position in this world is one, again, that is not to be focused on this temporary world. In fact, to serve the Lord rightly, to serve Him in the way that you are called to, that we as the church are called to. You and I, we cannot afford to be focused on this world over that of the Lord's. We have to be focused on Him, not focused on what this world has to offer and what our flesh desires. Because again, that's temporary. That's temporary. What we are called to is eternal. What we are called to is to live with eternity in mind, living with the Lord and for the Lord in the position that the Lord has saved us into. And so today, as we look here at the position that we are to hold, you need to ask yourself, I need to ask myself, who do you, who do I, who do we love more today? Is it the Lord's or is it the world's? What position are you walking in light of? And understand that it's important for us to ask that because, again, God has called us in this world to have his mindset in mind. His mindset is missional. Our God is on mission, and he invites us into that mission, first with salvation, to to, to be a result of that mission. That's an amazing thing. I love that. That God went on mission to save the world, and as we are saved, as we are walking in relationship with him, we're a part of that mission being accomplished. But then we get to be a part of that mission, continuing to be accomplished because the Lord, for whatever reason, because he doesn't need us, he wants to use us and wants to lead us. But if we are wrapped up in the world, loving the world more than that of the Lord, then we will miss out on the opportunity that God wants to use us in. We will miss out on the life that God has for us. And my friends, 
But we weren't created for that. We weren't saved for that. You weren't saved for that. And so if the world and loving the world marks your life more today, understand the Lord, he is faithful and ready to meet you there and to rewrite your attention, to rewrite your affection. But you and I, we have to make the choice to say, Lord, I want to go after you. I want my love to be patterned after you and my position in this world to be that of standing in you over that of this world. Because Lord, you're better. And he is better. I hope you realize that today. The Lord is so much better than anything that this world has to offer. And so today, ask yourself and let the Lord speak honestly to you. You be honest with yourself. Who do you love more? Do you love the Lord's or the world's?